I feel really pleased with pre-vacation Vince that he found a poem called Turkey Love and just went for it. And I feel like it wasn't even Thursday afternoon when I found it. So after years of giving her dad a hard time for cruising Craigslist every night looking for deals, this spring, Rochelle got deeply into Facebook Marketplace. She was looking for a new dining set that could accommodate our whole family now that my parents are up here. And after many hours of searching and like two dozen or so emails with strangers and a lot of whining from me, she found one, a beautiful one. And yes, at an excellent price. It's Amish made, sturdy and well built in a kind of mission style like we like it served the previous family well for years, and they let it go for a song. But when we got it home and into our dining room, we noticed that from certain angles, in certain light, we could see words and numbers pressed into the surface. The remnants of checks signed on it and homework assignments completed around that table. The names of several states are etched kind of at irregular intervals along one side in a child's handwriting, maybe the ghosts of like a fifth grade social studies project. And over the top of that, at a different slant, are the answers to several multiplication problems. I imagine that it may have been an occasion for family fights, the nights the kids forgot to slide a notebook or a placemat under their homework, and that beautiful tabletop got all marked up. I wonder if years of staring at those indentations is what led the family to finally decide to get rid of it and get something shiny and new. I wonder if another family that had bought it might have seen those scratches and sent it back. But I love them. That sense of history pressed into the future, into the furniture the scenes it evokes of ordinary family evenings, getting your math homework done before you can play, the story it tells, and the way we are becoming part of it as we sign permission slips and write grocery lists and fight over fifth grade social studies projects someday. As we lay the impression of our own lives on theirs. I was reminded of the name for that kind of thing in this past month's book group selection, The Great Believers. It's called a palimpsest, which at its root means to scratch again. It comes from ancient practices of writing on wax-covered tablets that would then get melted and smoothed over and rewritten over top of. And later, the practice of writing on, on parchment, on animal skin that was so precious that it had to be reused when you were done with a document. It would be scrubbed with oat bran and then written over top of. But the impression was still there, underneath telling a longer story. In the book we read, a mother is trying to reconcile with her daughter from whom she's been estranged since adulthood. And she wishes she could explain her own life more fully, 
to tell her child everything that was written on her before she gave birth, the pain and loss, the hope. She wants to explain it. She wishes she could find the right angle and the right light to let this younger woman read those deep grooves within her to explain or to try to start to explain, it says, what her life had been, the palimpsest that was her heart, the way that things could be written over but never erased. She was never going to be a blank slate. I realized when I read that passage that the graphic for our do-overs theme is a palimpsest, or at least the beginning of one. Erased words waiting to be rewritten on, which felt like a happy accident, a good metaphor for what our do-overs look like and feel like. Although actually a lot of Christian tradition would say they look different than that. The parts that say we can be erased, that we must be erased, that we're washed in the blood of the Lamb. That faith or forgiveness or salvation is about being returned to some fresh, unmarked state. A blank slate again, finally. But I think we've never been blank slates. From the moments of our births, we're stamped with so much by our families, by our cultures, by our genetics. And before we're able to multiply or to write the names of the states, so much more has been written on us. And before we can imagine who we want to be and the kind of life we want to write, we're already so deep into the story. There's no perfect original to return to. And at least in my life, when I get a fresh start, when I'm forgiven or when I forgive someone or when I choose a new direction, it feels less like starting from scratch and more like being scratched over again. The same seems to be true for Paul. If there's anyone who could be said to get a fresh start, it's him. Changed completely in an instant, starting with his name, that S from Saul erased and replaced with a P, a symbol of everything else that has been scrubbed out for him. The last time we see him in the book of Acts, the first third of Acts, <laughs> just before this story, he's presiding over the stoning of the apostle Stephen. Paul doesn't throw any rocks, he only watches other people's coats while it's happening, but in case we're gonna let him off the hook, the last line of the story says, Saul approved of their killing him. And then we're in this story of a new start, of a radical change, a complete do-over from persecutor to evangelist, turning on a dime. And the opportunity comes directly from Jesus, the one whose blood is supposed to wash off everything that came before it. If there's anyone who should be, expect to be a blank slate, it's Paul. But that's not how it goes. The ones he was persecuting certainly don't see him that way. Ananias is sure God is just walking him into a trap. Go and visit the guy who has just killed my friend and the one who's carrying a parchment that gives him permission to arrest me and haul me back to Jerusalem? Like, has God forgotten everything that's happened to this point in the story? 
But even Paul himself doesn't trust it. In another version of this story, a few chapters later, Paul protests to God, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. In other words, they know the story I've been living. It's written all over me. You may think you've melted me down and scraped me clean, but the grooves go deeper than that. It's all still there beneath the surface. And yet God insists, this is who you are now. This is your new story. And so Paul, who can neither deny what he's written before nor go back to that old version of his life, does the only thing he can do. He keeps on writing right on top of the old stuff. He scrubs as hard as he's able, and then he sets out to put down his new truth in letters so dark that they will still be legible even with everything that's beneath them. We know because in the book of Acts alone, he tells the story of his conversion three times in like not that many chapters, one for each third, I guess. And another time in Galatians and and lots of other places, he makes reference to it, how God chose him, the most unlikely person for the job, the one with the most baggage, the one breathing murder, how God stopped him in his tracks, cut that old story off, and gave him a new one. Liberation instead of oppression, love in place of hate. Paul tells anyone who will listen for the rest of his life because he's also telling himself, repeating it to himself, retracing those curves darker and darker, insisting to everyone, but especially to Saul, that God's do-over is real, that a fresh start is possible, that the story can begin again in a new direction, not on a blank slate, but on a palimpsest. That no matter what has come before, what others have written on us, or what we've written for ourselves, every week, every day, every moment is a chance to write something else. On our trip to Slovenia in May, we visited a museum of puppetry. This is what it's like to be married to me. It was weirdly tucked into the second floor of the historic castle in the capital city. The whole museum was like one long room separated into two levels. Not big, but I loved it. It was exactly what I love about puppetry, like the playfulness and the creativity and the weirdness of the thing. At the front desk, across from what looked to be two giant baby heads in formaldehyde, the ticket taker greeted us and informed us that this was an interactive museum. In fact, later they showed us the button we could press to make the baby heads go up and down. Really fun (laughs) for a certain audience. We were meant not just to walk through the room, but to explore and to discover. And at first it looked like there wasn't really that much to explore or discover, like black walls on one side, glass display cases on the other. But then when we looked closer, we started to realize that what looked like flat, blank spaces were actually cabinets to be opened. 
and, and holes to be peered into. I, I put my eye against a small hole and I watched one of the first recorded instances of puppetry in Slovenia playing on a loop. Further down, I came across a display about an important early piece of Slovenian puppetry, the little sleepy star, which name does not sound as edgy as I wish it did. <laughs> there was a recreation of the original star whose eyes blinked if you pulled the right string. And below, a short explanation of the story of how this star had been called down to earth and and it was the star's responsibility to help the bandit, the fierce bandit, Seferin, to change by teaching him how to write the word beloved. Beside the explanation was this kind of electronic pad and stylus and an invitation to write the word yourself in English or Slovenian. On the side of the pad was a button that was supposed to erase it for the next person, but it didn't really work perfectly. So when I wrote Beloved, it was over the ghost of the Slovenian Luba. And when I erased mine, you could still faintly see them both in the background. And I took a picture because how is that not going to end up in a sermon at some point? like a little rectangle where people just write beloved all day and no matter how many times it gets erased, someone comes along to write it again, to insist on it over and over and over. It was bound to get preached on like within six weeks. Because what else are we doing here? Today we're going to re-bless these new members who have joined our community in the last two years, a few of them at least. And it's silly, really. We don't need to do it. We bless them all a first time. And there was nothing wrong with that blessing. It never needed to be done in a certain way in order to take. The words we said over them originally are still true. They don't wear off or expire. But they do get covered over sometimes by all the words that come after by all the things that get written over top by others or by ourselves. Old stories that people refuse to believe we've turned the page on. Deep grooves we fear that we're not worthy to stop tracing. That's why we're here telling a different story this morning and every week why we'll lay our hands on these no longer new members and others will lay their hands on us, also no longer new. And we will write it again a little darker now. The name that God insists upon, the one we write again and again and again every week that we repeat here, maybe until you're tired of hearing it, but hopefully at least until you've begun to believe it. This is why we come back week after week, scribbled on, scratched up, carved into, not to be melted down, not to be washed white as snow, not to deny anything that has come before, but to keep writing over top of it, tracing the letters until they cannot be scrubbed off of us, learning to look at one another 
and our neighbors and our enemies and ourselves at the right angle, in the right light, to see it in everyone we meet, to see your true name, beloved. <laughs>